The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. It's good to see you. Yes, thank you, Father. You're doing well. Yes, good to see you too. <clears throat> We're a little bit taken aback today, as you know. Uh, earlier today, I got the word that uh, Father Daniel Dolan passed away, and a, a former compatriot, right, uh, in the early days. Uh, we worked together for quite, quite a number of years, and uh, Father Chicada had died just uh, maybe about a year ago now. So we've been praying for him, and we'll be certainly praying for Father Dolan as well, and I ask everyone else to keep him in your prayers, keep them both in your prayers every day, please. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so it's uh, impacted a lot of people, and it's uh, certainly a, a great, uh, a great hardship and a great sorrow for many, many, many people. It was very unexpected, correct? Then? Completely unexpected, and um, <clears throat> we've had a number of uh, deaths over time, and uh, unfortunately, there that it, it appears that there is some connection with the vaccination. I don't know if Father Dolan was vaccinated or not, but um, the word, preliminary word we're hearing is that Father, and people always ask, you know, what was the cause of death? And the preliminary word, I don't know if the coiner has pronounced on this yet, but it's uh, a heart attack. <clears throat> and uh, there seems to be a common thread of those who've been vaccinated at uh, sudden cardiac arrest, uh, some sudden, sudden heart attack seems to... Uh, uh, well, uh, connect the dots, you know, as it were. So I, I don't know if that's the case here, but, uh, but I do know for a fact that he's passed away, and so I ask you all to pray for him. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Father. We will definitely Certainly. keep him in our prayers. Um, well, we had a number of emails, Father, that we wanted to get into, some leftover from last week uh, that we didn't have time to work through, so... Um, if I could begin with a reference to a recent sermon you gave. Uh, this viewer said that in your sermon you spoke about how the Jews spoke bad things about our Lord before they finally crucified him. And this viewer asks if we are guilty of character assassination when we say something about our president or other politicians uh, with whom we don't agree. He says that he is uh, preparing for confession, and he was wondering if he should confess the negative things that he has said about the political leaders of our country. Well, it depends on what he said, you know, uh, to know whether or not uh, something amounts to slander or something amounts to calumny or detraction, you know. Um, detraction is uh, saying private Talking about the private faults of another person uh, and revealing those private faults to others who have no need or no right to know them, right? Um, so, um, you know, 
it, it assumes that what is being said is the truth, but it is not everybody's business. Okay, it is the private matters, and um, so it's not a matter so much of lying as it is uh, spreading stories that can be scandalous and they can attack another person's reputation. Uh, calumny, on the other hand, is spreading known lies about another person, which uh, comes down to slander again, right? Spreading things, stories that are damaging to another's reputation that we know, uh, the stories we know are not true. Um, you know, if you were to discuss which of these is worse, I mean, if, if these things that are said could co cause grave damage to the reputation of another person, then they would be mortal sins. Um, which is worse? Well, I guess you could look at it from the standpoint of uh, the fact that calumnies involve lies, and uh, they are slanders. From that point of view, uh, calumny would be worse. <clears throat> However, uh, because they are lies, one could correct the damage by admitting that he lied, and that the stories he told about another person that were so damaging to the reputation were simply not true. And to that extent, I guess you could actually salvage the reputation of the person by admitting, by the person humbly admitting that he had lied and he was guilty of uh, slander, therefore. <clears throat> Whereas if one commits detraction, it's, it doesn't really solve the problem of the damage done to the other's reputation by saying, look, everything I told you about that person was true. He or she really is guilty of all these terrible things that I told you but I shouldn't have told you. So that doesn't really amount to, to anything that would be a remedy, right, <laughs> to the person who suffered the damage. So whereas calumny might be more serious of a mortal sin because of the lying aspect and the malice behind it, uh, detraction can be much more difficult to fix. How do you restore somebody's reputation? If you spread damaging truths, and then the only way you can address it is by saying, well, I shouldn't have told you, but all of it is true. So with regard to what we say about politicians, first of all, they're in public life. They take uh, public stands on things. So it's, <clears throat> it's hard to talk about things that are not of public interest and public concern, yeah. even if we were to talk about their, their character. I mean, they're living a public life. And uh, if we're going to vote for them, we rely not only on their policies, but we rely on their character, too. Uh, to be honest and to have the fortitude to carry through on the, on the let's say, they propose good policies, and we would vote for good policies, and we trust them to have the fortitude necessarily to carry out the good policies. We're not voting for the man or the woman, we're voting for the policies they talk about, whether they're right or wrong. So it is of, of great interest and public interest that we determine uh, the character of the individual. And that would largely determine whether we can trust to vote for them. <clears throat> and then, of course, the, the, the morality of the positions they espouse. So to criticize the position that they espouse as being morally wrong, criminal even, in the eyes of God, there's nothing wrong with that as long as what we're saying is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and people have a right and a need to know. And with regard to the, the, you know, the legitimacy of their word and determine how reliable their word is, well, that's a matter of character.
<clears throat> again, somebody who puts himself forward for public office um, has to stand on the basis of his character and has to be trustworthy. If he's not, people need to know that. Um, generally speaking, when we're talking about another person, <clears throat> we always have to be moved by, again, justice and charity, right? And um, when we are talking about the sins or the crimes of another person. We cannot really speak of these things unless there is a, a real necessity to do so. Um, for me to get up and just reveal the sins or shortcomings of another person, just for my own entertainment, my own amusement, gossiping, whatever it is, spread stories because other, find, other people find it interesting and I like to talk, and this is what they like to hear, so that would be wrong. But if I have, let's say I have a salesman who's coming to, to sell me something. Sell me a used car, sell me a vacuum cleaner, sell me a toaster, whatever it is. <clears throat> and uh, let's say somebody knows that this salesman is not honest, okay? Or the company that he represents is not honest. Let's say they know this for a fact, maybe from personal experience or whatever. Uh, good report, solid, reliable reports. Would it be a sin of slander for somebody to warn me about this? Or would somebody say, look, he has a right to know this. He even has a need to know this, right? And the answer is, well, yes. I mean, if somebody is being put upon by somebody who is not honest and not reliable and is being looked upon to make an investment or to perhaps even send his children into the classroom with this teacher who is teaching all of these evil things. That, that person has not only a right to know, that person has a need to know. And it would be sinful not to tell them, not to warn them. You know, if I'm going to take a boarder into my house who has a reputation for being a pyromaniac, an arsonist, right? Or who knows what, right? <clears throat> I would have a need to know. And somebody who um, who knows or believes he knows the truth about this, and the truth is very, I mean, it puts me in danger or puts my children at risk, for example, would have a certain moral obligation to tell me. You know, when people are getting married, the church has the bans of matrimony announced three times prior to the marriage, <clears throat> and the the main purport of the uh, the main purpose of the bans of marriage is to find out if there is some serious reason why these two people should not be joined in marriage. So maybe somebody knows this person is an international jewel thief, uh, a, a drug runner, uh, is, has been, is already married uh, to somebody somewhere else in the world. Um, that person has an obligation under pain of mortal sin to come forward and to tell the priest. <clears throat> so, uh, obviously, it'd be wrong for somebody to reveal that information to just anybody and everybody. You reveal it to the person who needs to know. Uh, but there is an obligation to reveal it, not to reveal it to those who don't need to know and can't do anything about it, but a moral obligation to reveal it to the person who needs to know and can do something about it. So, when you have a politician, again, it's it's understood, if if, if somebody is being sold an overpriced vacuum cleaner that doesn't work, 
right? And, and they're being uh, lied to, they're being deceived into a purchase by fraud, and somebody has an obligation to let you know that, right? Before you are guilt, you know, you're, let's say, the victim of theft, basically. How much more so would a person have an obligation to reveal the bad character of a politician, the dishonesty of his campaign promises, and yeah, that he's a serial, uh, uh, you know, liar when it comes to making promises and then betraying the promises, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there can be a very serious obligation to make known um, the, you know, a, a politician's uh, bad behavior, uh, dishonesty, and so on. Um, so, again, I don't know what the writer of this question has been saying about the politicians. If he's been saying something that is just speculation, something that is not true, then yes, he would have an obligation to confess that, and he would have an obligation to try to make that right. You know? mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, if somebody is spreading stories uh, about you know, a candidate for public office, that he finds are just stories or not verified, questionable sources and so on. He really should go back and he should tell people, look, what I told you yesterday as fact, I don't know that it's a fact. Okay, I realize that this it might be character, character assassination against this candidate to try to uh, swing uh, the polls and the votes to this other candidate who's spreading these, these calumnies about, about this other candidate. I think we know of a candidate here in, the, in, the, in, in Ohio, one of our own candidates for Senate, who has been victimized by that kind of calumny. <clears throat> uh, and if one hears these things and spreads them as though they were facts, uh, then one would have an obligation to, realizing that they are not facts, they're not proven, and they're highly expected, would have an obligation to you know, let people know, okay, I don't know that this is a fact, this is just... Uh, information, possibly misinformation, that is being spread by his, his uh, opponent. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, I mean, if it's something that's very clear, if somebody's uh, pro-abortion, it's not wrong to say that this person is actually, whatever his state of mind is in this, he's actually, in fact, pro-baby murder. It's, it's a child murder, is what it is. He's actually supporting child murder and supporting abortion. And for that reason, you know, no Catholic can in good conscience, and no, no person, nobody in good conscience can vote for this person any more than they could, uh, they could support abortion. That would not be calumny, to make that clear. Or this person talks pro-life, but he doesn't vote pro-life. Uh, and he's deceiving you, he's being deceptive, you can't trust him. Well, if the record shows that, then one not only has an obligation to say it, it certainly wouldn't be a sin to point that out. It'd be, it'd be kind of a sin to keep it to oneself and let people be deceived. Mm -hmm. okay. So, uh, you know, it depends on what has been said and whether it's, whether it's verifiably true. Um, now, let's say somebody actually knows for a fact that this politician or that politician stands for something that is immoral or pretends to stand for something good but is deceiving people and lying about it, okay? So the person makes this um, statement revealing this fault in the person's policies or the person's character. 
Can it still be a sin if it's all true, even if he had a need to say it? It could be if the person is motivated by personal malice. In other words, I could go to confession and say, you know, I said this about uh, any one of these politicians or candidates for political office, and when I said it, it was true, I verified it, and uh, everything I said uh, was factual as far as I know, you know. Uh, but I'll tell you, I have a certain personal malice toward that person, and that was certainly part of the motive with which I spoke, not just out of justice and charity for the people I'm informing of the facts, but I have this animus against this person. I'd like to get him, you know. I'd like him to suffer and be punished um, because I don't like this guy. Well, again, that would be against charity. That I could confess, but I couldn't confess dishonesty. I couldn't confess slander. I couldn't confess detraction, and I couldn't con certainly couldn't confess calumny. But I could confess that some of my motivation was that I just, I really don't like this guy. So to that extent, yeah, I guess uh, even then, you know, one could say, yes, I, I, I certainly uh, lack charity toward this individual. And when I speak, I know that that's part of my speech, <laughs> you know, motivating, motivating factor in my, in my denouncing him. Okay. All right. Very good. Thank you, Father. That's, I think, what the individual was asking, right, essentially, okay. what, yeah. what to confess about that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Very good. Father, uh, next question. In the crucifixion, did Christ bear God's wrath or Satan's wrath? Well, in a sense, yes. <laughs> um, obviously, not in the same way, right? Um, St. Paul talks about our Lord basically... Um, <clears throat> drew um, the wrath of the Father upon himself. And this in spite of the fact that the Father has infinite love for his divine Son. Because Jesus Christ is that divine Son of God, that divine person who has taken human nature and has placed himself in our place as sinners. <clears throat> and all of the wrath of God due to our sins, our Lord took upon his own shoulders, literally, in taking the cross, right? <clears throat> um, St. Paul even makes some rather startling, you know, uh, about our Lord drawing the wrath of God upon the tree and, you know, so on. And, um, but that doesn't mean that um, there was any less love of the Father for the Son, and certainly no less of the son, love for the Son for the Father, because everything that was done was done motivated by, by love. Right? Um, uh, inconceivable love, love beyond the power of human, uh, human understanding. So, in a sense, our Lord was willing as a matter of love, as a matter of love for his Father, and as a matter of love for us, our Lord was willing to pay the price for all of those sins, and to that extent, uh, God, Almighty God's hatred for sin, our Lord took upon himself. As though our Lord somehow became sin, not in the Lutheran sense, you know. <clears throat> um, but he was willing, in a sense, to take upon himself our nature 
and uh, in everything but sin, but he was willing then by an act of the will to uh, basically shoulder all those sins on himself, you know. Had he not done that, there would have been no redemption for us. Uh, but we, shan't, we cannot understand that in any way that would diminish in any way the love of the Father for the Son, uh, that infinite love that is there. If anything, um, the love of the Father for Jesus Christ, his Son, as man was so perfect because, let's face it, I mean, God the Father loved his divine son as man, and the human soul, as well as the human body, for his willingness to fulfill that mission. You know, our Lord says as the, to the apostles uh, when he appears to them uh, in the upper room, the, the very night of the resurrection, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And so our Lord talks about that often, about I've come to do the Father's will, the Father has sent me for this, right? And the primary purpose for which he's sent him is to redeem us, redeem us uh, by that sacrifice. <clears throat> so if anything, I mean, it is, again, a source of this tremendous love of the Father for the Son, not only as God, but as man, because of that tremendous uh, devotion to the Father's will, not only as God, but as man, that motivated our Lord to accept that, to take upon himself that great burden of guilt. Not that he became guilty, but he accepted all of our guilt unto himself. So to that extent, and in that sense, you can say that, yes, our Lord was willing to, to draw that, that guilt up to himself by an act of the will that he accepted it that he was willing to pay the price for all of that guilt. <clears throat> um, and uh, God hates sin, obviously, huh? because it's so contrary to God's love. Right? Um, the only thing in the world that we can hate is sin. And we hate sin because we love God. Simple as that. And it is an inverse proportion. The more we love God, the more we hate sin. <clears throat> the less we love God, the more we actually embrace sin, right? The more we embrace sin, also, the, the less we love God, necessarily. <clears throat> sin is essentially, especially a mortal sin, is actually a choice rejecting God in favor of some creature, mere creature, a true disorder of the soul to reject the infinite and the perfect good for the sake of some very limited created good. It's such a, a total insult to God, to Almighty God. And it is essentially a matter of ordering God out of the soul, saying, I do not want you. I love this more than you, and this is my idol, and you have to go. Terrible thing, right? When those who love God hate sin, therefore, that's true contrition. The essential element of true contrition is the hatred of sin, and it is motivated by love for God. So, um, to the extent that our Lord, again, drew all of the guilt for all of that sin to himself, in that sense, you know, God 
uh, the father's hatred was directed to the sin. Uh, and to the extent that our Lord was willing to pay the price for all of that, you could say that, yes, God drew the, uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Son of God and man, uh, drew the wrath of the Father unto himself for our sakes. Um, but when the, when the person asks, does, this, does he incur the wrath of Satan? Uh, the answer would be, yes, he does. Why? Because, I mean, it is in the redemption. It is in our Lord's sinless willingness to endure the price of all sin. This, Satan knew his kingdom was threatened, shaken to its very foundation, right? And um, that souls would be saved. Uh, where there was no hope without this sacrifice of our Lord on the cross. And uh, this is the one thing that Satan himself hates the most, uh, and that is our faith and hope and charity, which came to us through the cross of our Lord and his sacrifice. So, you know, it's almost as though Satan couldn't help himself. Um he had suddenly the, the Son of God, as it were, made man, and within his power. Voluntarily, the Son of God puts himself within the reach of that power. And Satan took his, his wrath out, even though he knew. Uh, I mean, he had, to, he had to accept this by faith. He had to know that there was a Redeemer promised. He certainly did, from... Uh, the Garden of Eden. He knew this, Genesis 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. So Satan knew there was a Redeemer, right? He was already fishing around in the desert, right? Before the uh, wedding feast of Cana, he was fishing around. If you are the Son of God, do this and do that. <clears throat> and our Lord made it clear in the course of his public life, yes, he's the Son of God, um, demons went out, as our Lord was casting them out, proclaiming him to be the Son of God. So, yes, they'd gotten the right idea. And uh, even Satan knew from prophecy that there was a Redeemer who would come into the world who would redeem us from our sins. But his malice was so great, he's just blinded by his malice that he plows straight ahead and you know, takes everything out on our Lord. Um, all of his hatred and all of his vitriol and all of his malice and he takes it out on our Lord. So truly, you'd have to see that, you know, Satan vented all of his wrath against our Lord. <clears throat> and you see that not only in the nails and the, the thorns and the whips and so on, but you see it in the anguish that our Lord experienced, right? That Satan was leaning very heavily on him to torment him in terms of the anguish of soul. No wonder our Lord said, before he set foot in the Garden of Eden, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. So he was already being oppressed <clears throat> by the powers of hell. And that was certainly a matter of malice. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to say in one way, yes, our Lord, um, as it were, drew to himself the wrath of the Father for sin. Uh, he did it out of love for us, but he also drew to himself the wrath of Lucifer as well, the wrath of hell. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it was by the very 
very fact that he, he redeemed us. Well, that's a great question, Father. Very good discussion. Thank you for that. We had a question that might be somewhat related. Um, where a viewer uh, wrote in, asked, uh, Did God will Judas to betray our Lord? I heard that on a Catholic radio show, and it seems wrong. I was always under the belief that the devil entered Judas. Would that be considered God's will? Well, we have to understand that, that God is God, and nothing can happen without God's consent, right? Um, every single thing that, is, that exists, exists because of God's will. And it is God's will that, in a sense, powers everything, okay? Um, the very existence of Lucifer depends upon God's will. Uh, just as your, your existence, my existence, every molecule in this table, right, everything, uh, <clears throat> uh, absolutely depends upon God's, God's will that it, that, it, that it continue to exist and that it have the power to function, okay? So to that extent, yes, I mean, God consented to that. The standard teaching of the church, though, is, and it, there are different expressions used for this. Some talk about God's, uh, God's, God's will, his absolute will, and some talk about, you know, his conditioned will in the sense that he, he wills that things happen um, for the sake of some higher good, right? Like our free will, <clears throat> even though we, he knows that we will use our free will to sin. God, in his infinite power, can make the greater good result even from our weakness and our malice. Um, there's also the designed will of God and the resigned will of God. Right? The designed will of God is everything that happens according to God's plan. The resigned will of God is the things that we choose contrary to God's plan. And, uh, and yet God still can even use that in order, to, by grace that he gives, to make it turn out right and even better. So we have tragedies that happen because of sin. But because we do not underestimate the power of God, uh, we understand that God can take even our sins, our malice, that may even lead to our condemnation. But he can, by his own power, make it work out that even our sins somehow ultimately lead to a greater triumph. Um, the salvation of more souls, or the fact that souls in heaven actually are greater saints because of it. And only God can do that, but he does it as God. As I mentioned before, the, you know, the greatest mistake the enemies of our faith make is underestimating the power of God, but the greatest mistake we make is underestimating the power of God, right? We have to be quite convinced of it, even when we see the evils of the world, we have to have that absolute conviction of the power of God that he can and he will um, tolerate these evils for the sake of what he can do by the power of grace <clears throat> to make things better than even they would have been otherwise. <clears throat> I mean, why did God, did God tolerate original sin? Because of what St. Augustine said in the Exultat, right? We quote St. Augustine, O Felix Culpa, O blessed fault that has brought to earth such a wonderful Savior. 
that God was able to manifest his love for us in such a spectacular way. <clears throat> so he calls it Ophelia Scopo, blessed fault, uh, the original sin. And that's all an ex a Catholic expression of belief in God, the, the, the infinite power of God's will for good. Um, so in any case, um, in that sense, yes, I mean, it was God's will, resigned will, that evil happens. And in that sense, that Judas betray our Lord, because uh, God could have prevented it, couldn't he? He could have prevented it, but he didn't. Why? For the sake of some good that only he could do, ultimately. And we know that what that good was, of course, um, God did not prevent that, that failure and that betrayal of Judas, because God could use it to accomplish the redemption of mankind. It doesn't relieve Judas of any guilt or responsibility for what he did, right? Our Lord said, Woe to him through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him never to have been born. That's kind of bone-chilling, really, the thought, right? So Judas still has the responsibility for it. And our Lord says, Our Lord says to Pilate, You would have no power over me at all were it not given you from above. Right? Remember that? Therefore, he who betrayed you, me to you has the greater sin. And so he talked about Pilate's responsibility, but he talked about those uh, the one who betrayed our Lord as having that great responsibility. But God can allow this or tolerate that to happen for the sake of some greater good. Perhaps, perhaps it might help to understand it this way. I don't know, I don't want to get too complicated here. And I've already mentioned this to some extent, I think. But if you, if you look at the Ten Commandments, okay, um, you, go to, you go to Exodus chapter 20. In that chapter of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, you find the record of God giving Moses the Ten Commandments, right? And you come to the last commandment. And the last commandment in the Douay-Rheims Bible, as it's called, says, uh, has God saying this to Moses? So this is what the commandment reads on the, on the tablets. Right? Uh, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. And then it's punctuated with like a semicolon there. And it continues, Neither shalt thou desi desire his wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that belongs to him. And so, I mean, here you have the commandment, thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's house, standing alone. And so that's the major thing, you know, that's the great sin. And then almost as a corollary to that, that you shouldn't desire his wife or his slaves or his livestock, right? Or anything that belongs to him. Now you think about that and you wonder, well, why would God give the Tenth Commandment this way? And then, when our Lord came into the world, the Son of God, he changed it. Uh, why would there be something so defective about that commandment that lists the wife with the slaves and the livestock as, as a possession? 
And this is God. I mean, God, the Father himself, gives this commandment to Moses, you know. And the answer is actually to be found in the Sermon on the Mount, St. Matthew chapter 5, where our Lord says to his disciples and apostles, it was said to you of old, do this. But I tell you, don't do that, do this instead. You know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was said to you of old, revenge. Avenge yourself, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I say to you, no. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hurt you, and so on. Our Lord made this. It's, It's part of the commandments that he gives after the Beatitudes. And showing mercy, notably. And, um, but then our Lord sums all that up saying, do not think that I've come to destroy the law. In other words, anybody who might in, you know, in, infer from what our Lord is saying that he's against the law of Moses, that he's rejecting the commandments. Our Lord says, I have not come to destroy the law. I've come to perfect the law, to bring it to completion. And so our Lord makes it very clear <clears throat> that the old law was not perfect. But the question then comes, well, why would God give a law that was not perfect? Well, St. Paul actually answers that question, doesn't he? He talks about salvation cannot come by the law. The old law was imperfect. Christ said that. So we look at the commandments as God gave them, we realize our Lord is saying <clears throat> that these, the laws that God laid down to Moses are not perfect. But when our Lord came into the world, He's the one who came personally to bring them to perfection. And our Lord said this specifically with regard to marriage, uh, with regard to God's you know, permission to Moses to allow people, the men, not women, to put away their wives and take other wives, to divorce. That's what the Pharisees confronted our Lord with, saying, Moses said we could. And our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking as the Son of God, says, no, you can't. Moses tolerated that. But you read in Genesis chapter 3, where Almighty God says in, in Genesis, right? <clears throat> Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father. I mean, the two people on the face of the earth whom he should love the most. And he will go and he will cleave to his wife. And the two will become as one flesh. That's what our Lord said. And that's where our Lord said, quoting, quoting Genesis chapter 3, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So, Jesus Christ is speaking as God here, overruling Moses, but he's also making it clear that the law that was given to Moses was not perfect. And again, the question comes down to, why would God give the old law, and it's imperfect, and even God says it, that he's come to perfect it because it was imperfect. And I think the record shows that Because um, the people, the stubbornness of the people, um, would have reacted so badly that uh, Moses probably would have been stoned to death on the spot if he'd come down and told them. You saw the reaction of the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews when Jesus Christ himself told them, you cannot do that, that's committing adultery. Now, if it was Moses who came down that mountain 1,800 years before, or 1,400 years before, whatever it was, uh, about 1,500 years before, let's say, and he, Moses, was given the task of telling those people at the foot of the mountain, 
Mount Sinai, look, um, you can't do that anymore. That would have been it. <clears throat> but the wonderful thing about the providence of God is that Almighty God did not require Moses to do that. <clears throat> Rather, knowing the reaction of the people and the wrath of the people against this when they're told, no, you can't do this. Our Lord, Jesus Christ himself, took that upon himself to be the one to deliver that message. <clears throat> a message that was a matter of perfecting the law. And he was willing to bear the brunt of their wrath. There wasn't just the wrath of the Father because of sin that we committed. It wasn't just the wrath of the powers of hell who saw an opportunity to, as it were, attack God. Uh, it was the wrath of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the rest of them, right, that came together against our Lord. And our Lord was willing to brave that too uh, for our sakes. So the reason why I mention that is because I think it shows very clearly now that God is willing to tolerate evil for the sake of some great good. So it was in this case that I mentioned, and so it is in the case of the betrayal by Judas. Mm -hmm. um, the only reason why we'd have trouble accepting that idea is because we underestimate the power of God to overcome all evil and to produce greater good. But that takes faith. But that's the answer right there. All right. Well, Father, perhaps this can be our last email. Um, perhaps. <laughs> this is a uh, topic we've, we've kind of touched on before, but it says there are many traditional Catholics that believe Emeritus Pope Benedict XVI is the quote-unquote true Pope and that he may be the Pope in the Fatima message that will be assassinated. What does Father Jenkins think about this belief? Benedict XVI, is that right? I don't believe that's true. Um, I mean, you know, hypothetically, I don't know. But again, I mean, there are questions about the modernists who have brought in the changes. And Benedict XVI was one of the leading modernists in Vatican II, as he himself acknowledges. He himself has acknowledged that he was one of the leading theological voices in Vatican II. In fact, he's generally regarded as second only to Karl Rahner himself, the Jesuit theologian, the modernist theologian, who was the leading, leading paritus, paritus, theological expert at Vatican II. So, Karl Rahner the, uh, was the leading theological voice at Vatican II, guarding the bishops there, and um, took full credit for it. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Ratzinger, right? Uh, Josef Ratzinger was one of his protégés there. He had a very powerful voice for modernism. It's just that uh, Cardinal Ratzinger later admitted, or Bishop Ratzinger, you know, along the line, that everybody else had just gotten so much more liberal and more modernist than he was then that they make him look pretty conservative in comparison. Mm -hmm. But he remains very much a modernist in his thinking. Um, you know, you read some of the writings of Bishop Ratzinger and Cardinal Ratzinger at that time, <clears throat> before he became Benedict XVI, and you see that, that he was a modernist in his thinking. And so, you know, uh, there, again, there's a very definite question there as to what extent it is possible to be a modernist and still have faith. Right? <clears throat> um, but in any case, um, now, you know, when you 
when you read about that prophecy at Fatima, there are those who question whether that is legitimately a part of the Fatima prophecy. Um, about the, the Pope, you know, leading this great procession and being assassinated. Rome was half devastated and he was murdered uh, by soldiers who were shouting arrows at him and so on. Uh, there are those who question whether this is actually a legitimate part of the Fatima prophecy. There are others who claim, yes, it is part of it, but it's only part of it, that there's more to the third secret. And some have even talked about the a fourth secret of, of Fatima. There's more to it. And uh, those who question this generally are saying that what they're not telling us is about Vatican II and the modernist revolution and, uh, you know, the apostate, the great apostasy from the faith. They're saying that this is all part of the real Fatima revelation. And there are voices who claim to have seen the full revelation of the third secret, have seen the writings of Lucia, who testify that, yes, it's true, Lucia did prophecy did forecast the great apostasy and the crisis the church is going through right now with this massive loss of faith from the very top from the very top okay <clears throat> personally i believe that's true and uh i don't see benedict as being uh, one who's going to be assassinated in upholding the true faith i think he's had plenty of opportunity to do that <clears throat> and whenever he has spoken um uh, whether it be himself or through his handler against Ryan, he's always basically upheld Francis, right? And uh, this is the legacy that he's leaving behind. So, so I, I think it's a stretch, and it's I think people are scrambling for any possible plausible reasons to uh, just explain what's going on in the church right now. You know, people are saying, well, Francis is the true pope, and you have to accept it, and if you don't accept it, you're schismatic. Uh, Francis is not the true Pope. Uh, Benedict is the true Pope because Francis' resignation was no good. <clears throat> and you have to accept that Benedict is a Pope, and if you accept uh, that he's not, and you believe in Francis, then you're a schismatic. And then there are others who are trying to at least, uh, you know, express the voice of reason and say, look, there's a very serious question about the papacy of the modernist period, you know, just the modernists themselves. As Pope Pius X has described modernism, to that extent, as a synthesis of all heresies, and those who subscribe to modernism, and not only theoretically subscribe to it, but implement it, right, in the new order, that they're a suspect. And let's just agree to that, that it's suspect, you know, that, that there is good reason to, to question the validity of the papacy. Uh, I think that's the very least you can say. And yet there are those who say, well, you can't even say that. And those who say, that's not enough. You know, you have to say more. Um, so, um, unfortunately, I think the devil is using this controversy to divert our attention to the fact that what's essential is we practice the traditional Catholic faith and not waste our efforts on things that are above our pay grade, such as answering the question as though we can as though we are the magisterium of the church and we can definitively answer these questions for every soul in the world. Um, <clears throat> if we do follow Catholic tradition, though, I mean, Catholic tradition has made it very clear that you, it is perfectly legitimate for Catholics to raise the question, what would happen if a pope lost the faith and became a manifest heretic? 
great Catholic churchmen, doctors of the church, saints have raised that question. And the church has always accepted that that is a legitimate question. Has never told them, you can't ask that. You can't suggest that. You can't even think that. That's these modern-day conservative Catholics, so-called, who assume that authority themselves to insist you're not allowed to ask that question. Why? Because they find it offensive. But the church has never said that to anyone, has never forbidden that question from being asked, and even that question from being answered. But the church's answer was, it's not up to the individual. To, it's, up, oh, it's okay for the individual to raise the question, but it's not up to the individual Catholic to answer the question for everybody, as though that each individual was accepted the role of the magisterium. So <clears throat> to ask the question is perfectly legitimate. And even to come to a conclusion for one's own personal benefit and say, well, look, in this case, look, <clears throat> I question this whole complex of the Novus Ordo, a new order in the church. I question that. I, I at least question the legitimacy of this. I'm going to practice the traditional Catholic faith. In good conscience, I know that's the right thing because that's what Catholic tradition has always told Catholics to do. <laughs> exactly that. And that's what I'm going to do. That's what everybody should do right now. Everybody should go back to practice the traditional Catholic faith. Faith with a traditional Catholic mass offered by a real traditional Catholic priest, not a fake, let's say, a, a Novus Ordo wannabe traditional Catholic, or what I call a trino, a, 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 you know, like the traditional in name only, but a real traditional Catholic priest who was ordained by a real traditional Catholic bishop who was doubtless a true bishop. And, um, and that's what Catholic tradition tells us to do. It told us to do that 1,500 years ago. It told us to do it 1,000 years ago. It's telling us to do that. It told us to do that through the time of Luther, and it's telling us to do it right now. That was always the church's answer. Follow the traditional Catholic faith, the traditional Catholic mass, the traditional Catholic sacraments, and you'll, you'll come through. You'll remain Catholic. And those who didn't, they fell away. They wound up practicing some alien religion, which was not the Catholic religion, Catholic faith. So, hey, anyway, um, I'm not sure how far we've wandered from the question there, right? But uh, I, I don't think Benedict is, you know, the the if if that is, in fact, a legitimate part of the prophecy, the third secret of Fatima. And I think we have reason to think that it is a part of the truth or secret of Fatima. It is only a part. It doesn't tell the whole story by far. And no, I don't think it applies to either John Paul II or to Benedict XVI. Mm -hmm. okay. And certainly not to Francis either. Yeah. Yeah. But there, were, there was another question there. So maybe we can just smash that quickly. What do you think? Sure, yes. Um, <clears throat> There was something I did want to mention that was sent in by a viewer, too. Okay, 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 sure. I'll be, in my usual brevity, I'll use brevity about it. Okay. Uh, Father, can, uh, can clean tap water be added to holy water as the amount of holy water decreases and the integrity of the holy water still be kept? It can be, but only, only in moderation, meaning that you cannot add more, uh, let's say, tap water or distilled water, whatever, you cannot add more water than the original amount of holy water, right? As a precaution, I think the customs would be, 
if somebody has, you know, a certain amount of blessed holy water, that they probably would want to, if, they got, if they're in need and they don't have a source for renewing their supply or stock of holy water, that they can add a bit more regular water to it. Um, but, I, I mean, I wouldn't add more than like half of what I already have, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's not a matter of taking the holy water and pouring it into a pitcher of tap water. It's a matter of just adding a, a moderate amount of regular water to the holy water. Uh, does it dilute the blessing? No. <laughs> it remains holy water. Um, but um, that should only be done in necessity when, you know, one does want to keep a supply of holy water in hand and doesn't really expect to be able to, you know, obtain the new holy water, so. Yeah. But this is a, a common practice in the church. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, thank you, Tom. That was an easy one. <laughs> uh, it's perfectly legitimate to do that. Now, with regard to um, something, somebody sent in uh, a, a warning to us, and I thought it would be important for you to let people know that. Um, in May, our country is going to be called upon to agree to changes in the United Nations, um, shall we say, obligations to the international health regulations of the World Health Organization. That through the United Nations, the United States is bound to some extent to this World Health Organization. And in May, there's going to be a vote to determine whether or not we're going to accept certain amendments. Amendments would, that would give, essentially surrender our national sovereignty to the World Health Organization and give the World Health Organization dictatorial powers over the population of the United States of America uh, to impose worldwide health um, dictates regarding pandemics and treatments and all the rest. And uh, this, this uh, writer who's expressed a real interest in uh, what Catholics believe and an appreciation for it thought it was important that we should be aware of this. Why? Well, we have to pray for it. To pray about it, we also have to uh, take whatever actions are reasonably possible to prevent this from happening. To let people know we don't want this to be done. Now, whether this is Batsara, whatever his name is, who is the, the new health commissar, right, <laughs> here in America, uh, or who else has to... I haven't been able to read through all the literature, but I have uh, just carefully looked at it, as to what effect it would have. And uh, it would have a far-reaching effect on our country as far as surrendering our national sovereignty. Um, in fact, I have a summary of this. And uh, one source that my, uh, that, you know, that my contact recommended is um, through an, a man named James Roguski, R-O-U-G-U-S-K-I. James Roguski. 
And he has uh, an entry on this called Wake Up and Smell the Burning of Our Constitution. So um, this is what this writer has to say. He said, the World Health Organization is attempting a power grab. He says, most people have never heard of the International Health Regulations, IHS, International Health Regulations. The United States agreed to the IHR in 2005. These regulations override and supersede the United States Constitution. So that amount of sovereignty has been surrendered to this world organization, right, under the United Nations. It says on January 18, 2022, the United States submitted a number of amendments to the international health regulations that serve to give away even more of our sovereignty and greatly empower the World Health Organization, the WHO, to restrict your health right, related rights and freedoms. The 75th meeting of the World Health Assembly will be held in Geneva, Switzerland this May 22nd to 28th, 2022. The Assembly will vote on the amendments to the IHR. They are very likely to pass and be enacted into international law unless, quote, we the people stand up against this attack on our sovereignty. These amendments to the international health regulations do not need to be approved by two-thirds of the U.S. Senate. A very important point, you know. <clears throat> Remember when the League of Nations was in question? Um, and um, the United States Senate had to ratify that. And the United States Senate refused to accept membership in the League of Nations because as our senators, led by Henry Cabot, by, by Lodge, Senator Lodge, ruled that it would be a surrender, a criminal surrender of our national sovereignty to this international body, the League of Nations. <clears throat> that required the Senate to vote. He says this is not. Now, one can verify this very easily, I'm sure. So I feel a certain confidence in reading this to you because I know we can actually verify it um, and find out, and I ask people to, to do so, and check it out. He says, we have already agreed to obey the international health regulations by virtue of our membership in the United Nations and the World Health Organization. We have already given away some of our sovereignty. So these amendments are designed to confuse the member nations into giving away even more sovereignty. So it isn't a matter of approving an arrangement, it's a matter basically of amending approval that's already been given. So he says, in addition to the proposed amendments to the international health regulations, the World Health Organization has also set up an intergovernmental negotiating body that is actively negotiating an international treaty on pandemic pre prevention, preparedness, and response. The proposed pandemic treaty is separate from and in addition to the proposed amendments to the international health regulations mentioned above. The pandemic treaty does not yet exist. It is being drafted and negotiated right now. Discussions regarding the pandemic treaty are important, but they are also part of a sophisticated diversion to confuse people and get them to ignore the immediate concern. 
which is the amendments to the international health regulations being considered by the World Health Assembly this May 22 to 28. Okay. So he's warning us that this is in the offing. Uh, that with regard to a, a vote of this assembly in, in May, just a month away from us right now, uh, that could give uh, some very massive powers, again, by, by, by means of amendment, to an agreement that has already been made in 2005, surrendering sovereignty of our nation. Now, I've seen you know, writers warning that the World Health Organization is moving in this direction to extend its powers over the nations of the world, including our own. But this is the first actual uh, detailed write-up of it I've seen as to how they're planning on doing it. The point, again, we need to pray, right? We need to pray sincerely and fervently to Almighty God to protect us and our children from this. Um, this really doesn't come as a surprise, right? It's the kind of thing that you would actually expect to be happening. But at the same time, it's a matter of uh, realizing exactly what the plans are and uh, what moves they intend to make here. So uh, somehow we need, uh, you know, one would say ordinarily, well, contact your senators and your representatives and make sure they know about this. They're going to oppose it. According to this, they, they don't have the power to oppose it anymore. But God does. We'll see. Yeah, we have to... Uh, just uh, be better Catholics, meaning better Christians than we've ever been, and follow our Lord and recognize that He is Christ the King, and He has the power to make this turn out right. He has the power to veto this, right? He has absolute veto power. <laughs> so we have to implore His mercy and continue to, to implore His mercy for ourselves, our loved ones, our country, for our world. So uh, do that, please. Please pray. Ask our Blessed Mother, okay? We talk about Our Lady as being the health of the sick, right? Comforter of the afflicted, right? Talk about St. Uh, Joseph being the patron of the dying, right? In the litanies, we, we commemorate that title, those titles. And so I'd recommend that we begin to pray each day the three litanies in honor of the Holy Family, the litany of the Holy Name of Jesus, the Litany of Our Blessed Mother, the Litany of Loretta, as it's called, and the Litany of St. Joseph, those three litanies. Because I think there's great power there in honoring the Holy Family by means of those three litanies. And they all are direct invocations against the evil that is being devised even now. So uh, we pray that God himself will arise. As he's told uh, Mary and Martha when they were objecting to the fact that our Lord did not come to save their brother Lazarus from death, he said, did I not tell you that this was permitted for the sake of manifesting the power of God? Well, that's what we're asking for. We're asking for God to manifest his divine power. Right? Amen. That has to be a request that is pleasing to God. So, with that, I sign off here. <laughs> Father, thanks for your time tonight. I appreciate it and everything that you do. Well, you. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you, too. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.